0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 21st of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up on today's programme, the IAEA condemns attacks on the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Ukraine, calling for a stop to the madness. We'll have the latest from Kiev. In Japan, the country sees a third cabinet minister resign in less than a month. We'll hear more about Prime Minister Fumio Kishida's struggles in a moment. Then, what have we learned from the U.S. midterm elections so far? Monocle's Washington, D.C. correspondent, Chris Chermak, will sit down with two foreign journalists covering the vote. And the FIFA Football World Cup is, it's safe to say, in full swing in Qatar. Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco
1: joins me to look at the press coverage the event's been getting. What have you read so far, Faye? Hello, Tom. We'll talk about some of the controversies and also the frankly bizarre events of the World Cup so far. More
0: bizarre news from Fernando a little later. All that and more besides ahead here on The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. The International Atomic Energy Agency has condemned what it's described as targeted attacks on the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Ukraine, calling for an end to the madness. More than a dozen powerful explosions were recorded near the Russian-occupied plant at the weekend. Well, joining us for more on this now, on the line from Kiev, is Lada Roslitsky, founder of Black Trident, a defence and security consulting group in Ukraine. Lada, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us as well after another turbulent weekend. Um, Just start by bringing us up to speed. How much do we know about what actually happened in and around the nuclear plant over the weekend?
2: Well, again, uh, the uh, Russian forces have stricken the plant over 12 times. And once again, uh, the international community is asking the question, who is doing this in Ukraine? While we know that... Uh, the nuclear plant has uh, now lost its um, uh, critical infrastructure, particularly the startup power of blocks number five and six, which are desperately needed for Ukrainians to have electricity. And this is another component of Russia's genocidal war against Ukraine, but also in its terrorism, nuclear terrorism against the rest of the planet. The situation is very dire and uh, the uh, fake plant director from Ross Romanenko is uh, blocking the preparation for the power and to be brought up in at least a minimum uh, required level. So the terror is uh, is going on, and when the Russians are going to be leaving, hopefully they will be leaving uh, the plant in the future under international pressure, we should be really, really careful in examining what they're going to be uh, pillaging and removing from that plant and what they have already removed, because at the end of the day, it is a nuclear uh, facility. Well,
0: I was going to ask you, what do we know about any kind of protections or guarantees that will be in place if and when that moment comes Lada? Because presumably one of the uh, concerns in the medium term, away from the immediate threat and the instability this is causing in terms of power provision, is exactly as you say, uh, the threat of a serious nuclear accident. Do we know if there is any kind of Russian plan in terms of that takeover?
2: Well, I wouldn't call it a Russian, uh, sorry, a nuclear accident, because whatever would be happening would be happening under the direct control of the Kremlin, and the uh, Putinites would have to carry responsibility for that. Uh, As for them leaving the plant, we have no official news on on this maneuver that is going to take place and everybody's waiting for. In the interim, what the um, International Atomic Energy Agency is calling for is a protection zone. And your question is a really good one, because it is, uh, what does that entail? The Ukrainians have been calling for uh, closing the skies or protecting the skies over at least their nuclear plants from the very beginning of the uh, of the war. Uh, well, the, the um, uh, intensified war that started in, in February. Ukraine is calling for demilitarization, uh, the removal of all Russian forces from the plants and the cities, uh, of these plans, particularly in Arhodar, and uh, a complete return of power to the Ukrainian authorities over those uh, facilities. It makes perfect sense, but in the interim, perhaps we should be also considering some sort of international peacekeeping uh, mission that would be specialized and of course not have any Russians or, or Iranians, or uh, th- that was a joke, uh, protecting the, the nuclear plants inside of Ukraine.
0: Um well let me ask you a little bit about the the bigger picture. uh Lada Zelensky's claimed that Russia fired almost 400 missiles into Ukraine in in one day uh, this past weekend. Um well I, I guess my question is two prong. What is the immediate impact being of that level of strikes? And is there any sense about for how long the Russian military machine can even continue to strike at that rate even if it wanted to? <laughs>
2: Well, the strikes are uh, definitely hitting that critical infrastructure, which is incredibly uh, fragile right now. And millions of people, including myself, are are highly dependent on electricity, as you may well imagine, particularly as we're moving into really uh, sub-zero temperatures and and the winter is just starting when we have our our snow uh, coming in. So the attacks and the uh, capacity of the Russians to continue attacking us with so many uh, bombs and rockets is seri- severely under question, and that is why we're paying more attention to the cooperation with rogue states such as uh, Iran, which is now going to be uh, cooperating in more intensely militarily with with the Russians. And the amount of manpower we see mobilization, we see the Russians maneuvering, throwing over more men uh, into the Ukrainian territory. We're talking about tens of thousands of of men who who are coming here to kill ukrainians and uh, that manpower and mobilization is uh is unfortunately on russia's side because they don't really care about their men and their strategy is basically to tire out the ukrainians by throwing the untrained uh, <coughs> cannon fodder if you will First and to exhaust the Ukrainian forces and then having once the that fodder has been eliminated, uh, then they come in with their more specialized uh, and uh, um, intelligence Groups. So this is a very long ongoing uh, situation and it really should be stopped and uh, it's not that difficult to stop it's just that uh, a little bit more courage and integrity is required from international actors. Well, indeed. And just a final thought,
0: uh, Lada, in terms of how uh, the Ukrainian forces are faring, um, Zelensky, again, in his latest address, updated with some small gains in the east, the Luhansk region, and then largely holding their ground Ukrainian forces in the more intense fighting in, in the south. Is that your understanding of the picture on the ground?
2: Uh, yes, yeah, so we do have. We see some uh, positive aspects of the the Russians being pushed back. However, the fact that the Ukrainians do not have long range uh, rocket systems is really severely uh, um, limiting the amount of power that we we could have to really get the Russians out of our territory. So we really need to have those longer range missiles, and uh, and hopefully we will be receiving uh, armaments. Uh, much much quicker than we have been in the past months because we're we're low.
0: Indeed. Uh, Lada, thanks uh, for making sense of the latest for us. Always great to hear from you. That was uh, Lada Roslitsky. Now, let's cross and hear from Monocle's Emma Searle. She's standing by with the day's other news headlines.
3: Thanks, Tom. Authorities in Beijing have shut schools in several districts as the number of COVID cases continues to rise in the Chinese capital, despite the country's strict zero-COVID policy. Over the weekend, Beijing recorded three deaths from COVID-19, its first fatalities from the disease, in six months. Officials have called for residents to avoid non-imperative travel. Over 40 people have died after an earthquake shook Indonesia's main island of Java. More than 700 were injured and dozens of buildings were damaged, including an Islamic boarding school, a hospital and other public facilities. The magnitude 5.6 quake was centred close to the town of Shanjir in West Java province at the depth of over six miles. The former chief executive of Walt Disney is returning as CEO less than a year after he retired. Disney says Bob Iger is being reinstated as CEO for two more years. It comes as the company posted lower than expected results for its fiscal fourth quarter. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Tom.
0: Thanks, Emma. Now, Japan has got a new Internal Affairs Minister. Takeeti Matsumoto, a former foreign minister, succeeds Minoru Terada in the post. Terada resigned yesterday over a scandal involving party funding the third cabinet member to leave in less than a month, something that's been seen as a significant blow to Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. Well, for more, I'm joined now by Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief and Senior Asia Editor, Fiona Wilson. Good evening to you, uh, Fiona. Great to have you with us. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. We've got to characterise this is a bit of a problem isn't it for kishida
4: yeah i mean it's becoming even more of a problem you're absolutely right i mean he's lost three cabinet ministers in under a month that's not great is it um and yeah the latest one to resign um i think the other thing is they're all allies of kishida so it's looking it looks bad it looks like he can't appoint people properly which is what the opposition is playing on yeah Minoru minoru terada he he had to resign there's been an ongoing discussion about his political funding he was putting in inaccurate reports i mean he was even uh, you know his local support group had put in the uh, the name of the accountant uh, it was someone who'd actually died so none of it looks good for Terada, but it looks even worse for kishida well yeah and whilst
0: it's probably not rivaling uh, you know cabinet machinations here in, in the uk in terms of uh, the sort of ministerial roundabout it is clearly a problem and as you say in particular the fact that these are, are allies is there a threat i don't know if you're into the sort of day-to-day facility with which kishida can continue to sort of run his administration
4: yeah i think so i mean the polls are looking pretty bad for him i saw one in the mainichi which is one of the biggest papers in japan 43 percent of people asked hope that kishida will will quit so it's looking bad for him You know, this is a a cabinet that was formed in August. It's not an old cabinet. He did a big reshuffle in August. Promised experience and no problem with all the challenges. We can take them on. And it's just got sort of gone from bad to worse. Different scandals. But, you know, it just really builds up to saying, can Kishida manage the real problems that Japan faces? Never mind these scandal ridden ministers. Can he deal with the, the cost of living crisis, this ongoing discussion about the unification church? Um, which has been going on since the assassination of Shinzo Abe. So it's really looking quite dicey, I think, for Kishida at the moment.
0: Well, yeah, and you've mentioned there are a couple of these big problems, obviously economics, which is a bit of a global narrative, uh, the, the dreadful assassination of Abe, and, and Kishida's approval ratings kind of have sunk pretty much since then. While some of those things are obviously without his control, the aftermath of that dreadful Arbe assassination being one of them, other things are within his gift, or one imagines the people will expect that that they are. What can he actually do to turn things around, or does he have to try and navigate these choppy economic waters with whatever degree of facility he can demonstrate?
4: Yeah, I mean, these are good points. I think, you know, one of the big criticisms is that he's been you know hiring his friends and people are saying these are are not experienced enough these people they they shouldn't have been given cabinet jobs all first-timers as ministers these three and many people felt they weren't suitable and you know the opposition's just been grinding away the press is on the case So really, it's been a bit relentless. And I think it is very, it's a big distraction for Kishida. And I think also a lot of people felt he was being quite indecisive. Even uh, Tirada, this has been an an ongoing issue. He, He should have gone last week, really, instead of which Kishida didn't act, didn't act. He's been in Southeast Asia, you know, he's been at ASEAN meetings, G20, APEC meeting. And then, you know, events kind of overtook and he he did get the resignation on a resignation as it's being called the dismissal on sunday but it was seen as too little too late so i think he is personally being seen as quite weak and indecisive
0: uh, well, I guess let's just talk very briefly about the, the new broom, Takedi Matsumoto. I mean, I guess a little bit more experience, I think, had served as well, maybe as foreign minister before. So certainly has a bit more experience, a little more of a, a, of a sort of an, an older head, a wise addition, potentially. Do we know what kind of uh, ministerial style he'll bring to the post?
4: Yeah, I mean, he's been a for- former foreign minister, Matsumoto, so he's certainly experienced. I think the danger at the moment is... People are scrutinising so closely now that, you know, the merest hint of a scandal and and the, the, the papers will be onto to it. I think people are sensing that the uh, Kishida cabinet is in trouble. So, you know, I, it, he looks like a safe pair of hands at the moment. But, you know, I'm hearing about other cabinet ministers potentially with other scandals looming. So who knows if, if this is the end of the story yet?
0: Fiona, I sense we'll have to check in with you again soon. It could be another move on that ministerial merry-go-round that I mentioned. But for now, thanks for making sense of it for us. That was our Fiona Wilson in Tokyo. You're listening to The Briefing on Monacle 24. Keen for a quick tutorial on where you should take your business over the coming months? The really brilliant products are brilliant, not because of a marketing campaign or it's because they've managed to get some incredible ambassador.
5: They really are good because they add value. Interested to learn how one of the world's biggest pharma companies responded to the pandemic. We need what's called warm preparedness. So we need public health
1: systems that have the supplies ready, at least for the initial phase of a pandemic.
5: Curious about the future of air travel? Everybody's looking forward to connect with the world connect with friends around the world and just spend some leisure time and some relaxing time abroad. Or wondering whether shops will still matter.
3: There's thousands of different journeys through the store that anyone who walks in could take.
5: From CEOs to editors-in-chief, CMOs to chief strategy officers, our series is a fast-paced, intimate discussion with chiefs, big and small, from around the world. That's The Chiefs, right here on Monocle24, or wherever you find Finer Podcasts.
0: Now, nearly two weeks after the US midterm congressional elections, counting is very nearly over, and it is now clear the Republicans will take control of the House of Representatives while Democrats retain control of the Senate. To take stock of what we've learned, Monocle's Chris Chermak sat down at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. with two fellow U.S.-based correspondents, Julianne Schäuble with the Berlin Daily Der Tagesspiegel and Lars Oz from Norwegian public television station NRK. They began by describing where they spent most of their time during the midterms.
6: It definitely was Pennsylvania, which I did not choose to be my favorite uh, state to travel to. I, but the, the ex-president went to Pennsylvania. We had interesting Senate race. So this was a state I went to a couple of times. I also went to Georgia, as we did two years ago. Very similar, interesting Senate race and an interesting governor race.
7: Arizona is quite fun because it's. it was where it was a lot of noise two years ago, right? I mean, it was a big mess, right? So my thought was, okay, during the election, on election day and those days afterwards, Arizona would be the best thing to go to, right? Because there are some Republican candidates there, especially Carrie Lake, who have said almost a year before the election that she doesn't want to lose. Like she she doesn't wanna say that she lost. And I was outside or inside the counting office in Maricopa County for four days, just waiting for the results. <laughs> quite surreal, right? But I mean, when yeah. did you give up? <laughs> no, I never gave when up actually. But it, it's it... my God, that took. It was so close. So that was quite interesting to watch.
5: Juliana, one of the interesting things when last talks about the counting there that was so much under scrutiny ahead of these midterms. It felt like American democracy was at an inflection point. How much did you report on that ahead of time? And when it came to election day, were you surprised at how well things ended up going?
6: I mean, not all results came on election day. So I think it, it is it is a problem that in the largest democracy on earth and be kind of still counting um, some of the races. it has a reason to it. And, and the noise that was made of it in advance sounded so dangerous and so loud that They have to make sure, they have to double-check, they have to count and count and count. And then you have results, as we've just, just seen in the House races. The differences are so small, that a couple of hundred votes. So you have to make sure you really count the votes right. So we have been reporting in advance about it because the president himself made the future of democracy a campaign point. He said democracy is on the ballot and Obama said it too. So we of course had to report on the fears, what, what might happen afterwards and what but the Trump endorsed people would change if they could get their hands on it. So in the end, I think it was a big relief that uh, we did not see any, any violence, any larger conflicts. We don't have any big things going on, except for my Copa County in Arizona, where it took a while until the counting machines worked again. Uh, that was not so good, I think, for all the conspiracy theories that are spread. Um, but overall, I would say, it was kind of a smooth election. It just takes too long. And I think they really have to think about it to not have an election month the next time they go and vote on a national level.
7: Every state has different rules for a federal election. Me from Norway, and I guess for you too, it baffles me.
6: It's insane. <laughs> it, yes,
7: it's insane, right? Why? Same thing with the pres- presidential election. There are like some s- small different rules in each state on how you can vote. Oh, they're state-run. Yes,
5: every election is state-run.
7: But it's for a federal election. So the the logic here is just off the rails.
5: Lars, of course, after this election is just before another election, and we already have one candidate in Donald Trump. What did you make of his announcement? And what do you think of his chances with all the discussion post-midterms about the role he played, positive and mostly negative?
7: Well, I was outside Mar-a-Lago. I thought there would be thousands of people outside there because his base is still his base. 15, 17%, I think. That's the last number I heard. And I went down there and there were surprisingly very few. 150 people outside Mar-a-Lago. There's this huge bridge over to his huge mansion and and golf club. I was really surprised that there were more people.
6: More more journalists than... Trump supporters. There weren't
7: that many journalists either, okay. so I was happy about that too because that is is one thing I hate when covering political stuff is that we have more journalists than actual people, and um, I call them the, the MAGA people, right? Because they are the make America great again,
5: the hardcore, the
7: hardcore one, right? They haven't changed at all. They think that he will come in and be this, in some eyes, their messiah again. But it is interesting, especially in Florida, where we have seen that, especially after Ron DeSantis, won by, you, could, you can call that a landslide. And I talked to a strategist in Arizona who said that, it seems now like the first America movement has shifted its course, and maybe Donald Trump is not the guy who can lead them in a new direction.
5: Now, Juliana, we were talking before we started recording about what Berlin expects from you, what kind of coverage what is the story that people in Germany have wanted to hear about the most? Is it still Donald Trump or are there also foreign policy concerns that you were focusing on?
6: Both, I would say. It is always Trump. We made um, our front page, had a picture of Trump and just the question in English, why? And it was like, I had never gotten so many comments on a, on a cover because it was something everybody was asking, why is he doing this? Why is he doing it now? Why is he doing it to us? Why is he doing it to himself? So. Yeah, Yes, Trump is of big interest, but in times of a war in Europe, of course, the concerns what could happen if um, we have a split government or even a Congress against Biden. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for the West, for NATO, for our commitments to stand together? So it's more concerns. but they. They also were interested in someone like John Fetterman. They really wanted to know what is this kind of guy? What what does it say about the Democrats?
5: You mean the winning Democratic Senator from Pennsylvania?
6: Exactly, the one who had a stroke. They were interested in Georgia because of all the, the fears that were connected to the election process. They are interested in this Biden fit enough? Is he too old to be a um, president? How does he do it? And I always say, well, if I see him, he d- didn't really change in the last one or two years. I think he is, yes, he is old, but he is, uh, he is still going. And the midterms showed that he can be one successful president, almost. And Lars, on the foreign
5: policy side, was there something particular that you were following? and? Uh, In the next couple of years, I mean, with Republicans in power in the House of Representatives, do you expect much to change when it comes, for example, to the US response to war in Europe or Ukraine?
7: I do think what's been said here that that Republicans have been very open that we should cut down the, the money that goes to Ukraine. That could have been a very interesting thing to look at. But do you really think that will happen, though? Not in a no. I think I think some Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene and the more more extreme ones. They will try to like try to at least stop it. But for the most part, I don't see that that will happen at all. But I mean, now I know that Trump is going to run, I mean, there's like two years until the next election. So I feel like my job is not to overanalyze what's happening here, because a lot of our listeners and viewers in Norway, they know a lot about American politics. So the thing I love the most is just be out with people, capture their everyday life, their struggles, their uh, hopes and try to learn more and more about society. And then you take the politics in and wove that into good stories. Lars
5: Ussov, NRK, and Juliane Schäuble of Tagesspiegel, thank you for joining us. And,
0: of course, thanks to our own Chris Chermak in Washington, D.C. For that one, you're listening to The Briefing here on Monocle 24. Before the show ends, we must talk about the football World Cup. It's kicked off in Qatar. Monocle's Fernando Gustavo joins me in the studio to look at press coverage and some other observations and asides. Hello, Fernando. Hello, Tom. How weird talking about the World Cup in November, right? It's very strange. Very I strange. can't get used to it. England are playing in... In about, about half, half an hour. An hour. In about weird. half an hour. <laughs> but let's start at the beginning. Opening ceremony. Thoughts, reactions. Uh, day one has been completed. What did you make of it? It,
1: it was an interesting one, and, and and again, I think the press coverage is always very interesting, for especially here in the UK. If you're watching on the BBC, it was an extremely critical coverage, I have to say. If you wanted to watch the ceremony, you had to. They had a live stream, but it was not on the TV channel. The TV channel, you know, they mentioned, you know, the appalling uh, treatment for migrants. Workers in the country, the LGBT rights. I mean, quite courageous. I think it's fair enough. Even though, Tong, you know, I'm against boycotting an event mm. like this. But what I am in favor is to be very critical, and I think that's we here, the press, we can do that. And I think the BBC did this very well, and many other countries. I have to say, uh, although in Latin America and Africa, it's a little bit less critical. Even in the Brazilian papers, when I was looking, there was mention about the migrant workers. There's being, you know, it's being a little bit of an odd one. Uh, and I think we just saw, ha- we just had breaking news here as well. Uh, of course, FIFA, they are not allowing the, you know, the, the ban. They were going to d- use it. Some. Of The players to support the LGBT community. So they said that's not allowed because there might be fines or even sanctions. So I think some of the. They said
0: the players who wear. So this is the captains would wear their armband, which have a message of love and inclusivity, which one would have thought is apolitical. Mm. Um, And the players themselves could face an individual sanction like a booking, so they could miss matches as a consequence. Utterly absurd it, uh, to me I it, don't know
1: what you think of it. it is indeed very ridiculous and, and it's funny because they're getting a lot of bad press I think for them to kind of uh, release the statement today I think this is almost absurd but coming back a little bit for the opening ceremony mm. I didn't think was the best one it was a little bit you know I mentioned the word bizarre in my manual clip because suddenly you see Morgan Freeman walking there you know narrating I felt like I was in a kind of a, the a voice d- of
0: God Fernando, yes in like certain a,
1: films exactly uh I mean he does have a beautiful voice i have to say but he was very odd and he was wearing one glove but i mean i'm not gonna get into detail if he get like an accident of his hand but it was all kind of a bit strange and the dancers on there i have a criticism uh, you know i've seen a lot of opening ceremonies in my life they were not really synced you know there was i said i could do better I, I could do this little dance better
0: watch this space for maybe <laughs> the 2026 edition <laughs> exactly um, fernando then there was the small matter of course of the actual football and let's be fair Cut out the team possibly worse than Cat of the Country in terms yes,
1: of delivering on the day. It, it wasn't the best start in a way. I mean, Ecuador did mildly well. I think they won uh, two new, but I think today we're already starting to see some great matches. As you said, in about half an hour, England and Iran. I mean, it could be an interesting uh, match. Uh, as a Brit, are you kind of... A, well, as a Brit, actually, there are two countries of the UK. Well, an Englishman,
0: as an Englishman, yes. I'm kind of excited. Not quite sure about Gareth Southgate's selections either, Fernando. But to be fair, as a football fan, Senegal,
1: Netherlands, probably more of a standout fixture today, no? 4 p.m., uh, Senegal in the Netherlands, UK time, and then US and Wales at 7 p.m. And Wales, it's quite, you know, an emotional story for them. Last time they were in the World Cup was 1958. And, in fact, Brazil bit them, actually, I believe, in the quarterfinals. Uh, you know, that, that was not bad for them. Well, and there was another bit of history
0: was made the other day, Fernando. There was the first ever, the first ever World Cup press conference conducted in Welsh as
1: that's, a consequence that's trivia for you and and so how are you feeling because we were talking here especially here in the uk it's been very muted even in the newspapers because i remember i've spent a few uh, world cups here in the uk and it's all very exciting you go to the supermarkets they're all flags everywhere it's very different i'm sure there will be interest especially if england as well but it's very strange i mean you mentioned that it's you because know, it's, the winter. Mentioned that. it's not
0: about the, it's just because normally there's a great deal of excitement because everyone has been drinking excessively. We probably will do that a little bit Maybe. as well. <laughs> Drink it as a winter warmer. No, but it, I, I think it. there's also, in, when it's the summer, you have usually a whole month of build-up and everyone gets very excited about it. This is just jumped up there in the midst of the normal busy sporting schedule. It doesn't feel as special. And that's before you even think about implicit problems with it being
1: in Qatar this is not dissimilar to 2018 when it was in Russia some of the same narratives and I just want to mention something else here so just to look at the other side I have the New York Times in front of me they have an op-ed by a professor Abdullah al-Arian he's saying that the World Cup is a triumph for the region of the Middle East and they said this this World Cup will be more accessible for people who are coming you know from from Africa, from the Middle East. So it's interesting that there are some, you know, The Economist, uh, British magazine, did an editorial saying that Qatar is a worthier host than China or Russia. Wow, set the bar high, guys. It's it's an interesting one. There's been a lot of division this time. So this World Cup, I think, is going to be more political than ever. Mm. It's very rare to talk to someone only about football this time, I would uh, say.
0: And remind our internationalists: the next time it's going to be very different. Hopefully we can focus on the game. It's going to be in the summer and it's going to be in hopefully less controversial markets.
1: It will be in Mexico, United States and Canada. So I think that's what they're trying to do as well, to not have just one country hosting the event. Even though it's interesting, the US is such a big country, but they wanted to include uh, the whole region as well. So I think it would be much less controversial. Uh, I was going to ask you, Fernando...
0: What about the coverage in Brazil? Because it's super interesting. We were talking about, could this be the reassertion of Brazil as soft power player with Lula, not Bolsonaro? Uh, can people wear the shirt of the Celasal? Because that had been a an icon that was sort of
1: kidnapped by Bolsonaro a little bit. What's the coverage like back home? It's been... I think people are very excited. They genuinely think that Brazil are the favourites. And they kind of are, Tom. I think with Argentina, I think there's a big chance of a Latin American country to get the trophy. I mean, it's been 20 years. Uh, Western Europe completely dominated the World Cup in the last 20 years. But there's a very uh, critical question here in the Brazilian papers. Because, so, you know, it's not the very best convenient times there in Brazil. So people are saying, if I skip work... Is that okay? And then the lawyers, according to this article in São Paulo, say, listen, it's not okay. You'll be penalized. You can even be fired. But what's happening? A lot of Brazilian companies, they are doing special events. There will be big screenings. Uh, it, it's almost a p- public duty. I would say the majority of companies will do that uh, in Brazil. But don't think you can skip work to watch the World Cup. That's a big no-no, according uh, you know, to this very important articles that I've been reading. <laughs> uh and
0: Fernando, in case you have any funny ideas, the same holds true well, here in the UK. Our uh, journalist is for work, Tom. It's for work, so I can do lovely check ins here on the briefing. Dubious, <laughs> yes. dubious, Fernando. Thanks for uh, giving us your early reactions. Lots more, of course, from Fernando. As the World Cup continues to unfold over in Qatar, go England, I guess I should say, uh, coming up. Go England. At the top of the next hour. That is, although for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced expertly but remotely by Marco Sippi. And here at Midori House by Laura Kramer, our researcher was Emily Sands, our studio manager, was Adam Heaton. My thanks to them, one and all. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow, 12 noon London time. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thank you for listening.